When Luther and the other reformers visited the common peasants in electoral Saxony, they were shocked and deeply dismayed. Their problems were innumerable, running from administrative issues to serious th theological gaps. Most concerning the majority of the common people had no idea of the most basic principles of the faith. Luther's visits to electoral Saxony marked a turning point in the Reformation, leading to some of his most cherished teachings to this day. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and the content of the documents of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. So we have been discussing popes for a while, and now it's time to get back to Luther and the Reformation that's happening up in Germany. And there is this challenge in Germany that the illiteracy rate is somewhere between 5 and 30% among the people. And in the Wittenberg and the other cities where Luther is making an influence, there's changes that are happening. But those changes are happening at, I'll say, the upper levels of folks. You, you have the princes, you have the, the, the educated, the, the professors, the, you know, and they're fighting things out amongst themselves. But a lot of that seems to be going unnoticed on the ground. People are aware of Luther. The, the common folks are aware of Luther. Well, they enjoy the freedoms, the, the sense of liberty and, and the preaching and everything that's happening in the bigger cities. The question is, what's happening in your local country parish? What's happening with uh, the people that are in their homes trying to prepare their children to receive the Lord's Supper? On the political side, you had just had the, the death of Frederick the Wise. And Frederick was replaced by his brother, John the Steadfast. John the Steadfast. Yeah, we got to come up with a name for you. You know, Evan. <laughs> um, okay, we'll go Mike the Beer Drinker. Mike yeah. the Beer Drinker, right? <laughs> so, so uh, but well, it's it's you know, so they have John the Eloquent, maybe. Yeah, there you go. Huh. So so we have we have uh, John the Steadfast. And that's, again, that's, that's Frederick's brother. He's now the elector. The reason he was given the term the, the steadfast is because he resolutely continued Frederick's protection of the Lutheran movement. Frederick, because of his role as an elector and understanding, especially before Charles V was elected as emperor, Frederick is in this role of, of, uh, kingmaker. And he keeps some distance away from Martin Luther and the Reformation, while through Spalatin and his associates encouraging Luther, but never quite meeting Luther, never quite becoming a full-throated champion of Luther, but instead appreciating how the growth of Luther gives Frederick the Wise some negotiating position in the Holy Roman Empire. When Frederick dies... Charles V is going to be the emperor. He's a young man. He's going to be the emperor for a while. So now John the Steadfast, as the next elector, doesn't have to keep himself back and negotiating on both sides of his mouth for both sides. Instead, he can just be clear, full-throated in his support and protection of the Lutheran movement. Now, all of this is really, it's remarkably coinciding with other things that are happening that are also pushing the Reformation in that same direction. Most significantly, and we didn't have, we probably could have had a whole episode on the Diet of Spayer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but the Diet of Spayer 
was was held in June of 1526, and the emperor had a couple of objectives at that diet. So there's going to be another diet of Spire that's going to take place in 1529. But just for us to be clear, we're dealing with the one that took place in 1526. And the two things that the emperor wants to deal with, one is he wants to force the princes to comply with the Edict of the Diet of Worms, which had outlawed the Reformation back in 1521. He wants to raise money and troops for the defense of Austria and Hungary against the growing uh, Muslim forces from Turkey that are approaching his empire. So what's going to happen is at the Diet of Spire, the emperor believes he has the negotiating position to demand compliance. But what happens is, is that the, now the emperor, at least it sounded to me like the emperor himself wasn't there. Right. That it was the emperor's brother or somebody who was actually running the show at the at the Diet of Speyer. And and so he's on the ground and he realizes they can't get both objectives. If they push too hard on the whole Reformation thing, they're going to lose the support of the princes to get resources to fight the Muslims down in um, you know the Hungary area. Yeah. Uh, and so so he's he sort of sees it we've got to pick one of these that we're really going to push and they decide that okay we are going to uh we're going to let the whole reformation thing go and we're going to put all our chips into the bucket uh or into the pile that's that's going to go after you know protecting Europe against the muslim invasions so this creates a moment of detente between uh the catholic forces uh they're supporting Charles V as the holy roman emperor and the Lutherans, the evangelicals, as they're being known as. And so they're, they're essentially saying, we're going to allow the Reformation to last uh, without essentially too much disruption, as long as you provide money and troops. Uh, so the status of each region in Germany is allowed to stay as it is without reprisal. Now, the reason I mentioned the next Diet of Spire in 1529 is because that's when this detente is revoked and the people then complain and they protest and that's in the diet aspire in 1529 when they're known as protestants oh okay so in 1526 you've got this moment of all right we're just gonna let the status quo exist so that we can fight uh down by the danube the growing turk threat so Prior to 1526, the the Reformation was really primarily a populist movement, and that you know that it had a lot of a lot of support from the from the common folks. Uh, there was a lot of excitement for the people for a new and more equitable world. That sort of that that sort of excitement was happening independent of Luther. Luther was just part of you. You had people coming. You know, we talked a lot about the the peasants' rebellion. That was also a bubbling up of that excitement, that that energy. Uh, but this was the, the the Lutheran Reformation. The Reformation was part of this whole expectation that was going on at that time. Uh, the Reformation is largely taken in the center, city centers among the academics. The low literacy rate means that a lot of the changes aren't happening in the country parishes and in the local churches. But there is a populist movement that's happening. And now this visitation that we're going to be talking about in this episode is trying to measure this populist excitement and the the growth of the Reformation. Are they actually running in tandem? Are, are they united in their purposes? Or did the Peasants' Revolt kind of reveal that the populist movement is a whole different train track 
than the Reformation. And, so as we start talking about the, the visitations, this is kind of the thing they're looking at. They're like, asking that same question. That's that's really, you know, that's the whole thing behind the, the, the visitation is that there was obviously some questions. You know, okay, what is the nature of what the people are actually learning? What's the nature of this 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 reformation on the ground? And you end, you know, you had a lot of the oh, and the answer came back. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit now about John the Steadfast and how he is able to be so supportive of the Reformation theology and movement. Some of it comes, as we pointed out, at the Diet of Spire in fifteen twenty six, and the Emperor and his representatives allowing a status quo to exist in in Germany of if you're Lutherans, stay Lutherans for now. That's fine as long as you provide some money and troops. And and so John has this ability then to focus on the work at home. So John the Steadfast, even before the Diet of Spire of 1526, even before that, he was coming out strongly in 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 support of Luther. And uh, you know, one example is that you know he came right out where where Frederick the Wise always kept that distance. Like there's Luther. not even a record whether they actually met or not. Yeah, a lot of people believe they never did, and uh, I, I personally believe they never met. But the the you know so so you have this distance between Frederick and Luther. John gets much more connected with Luther where he actually comes forward and says, hey, listen, for example, I found different, different writers, different, different records saying that the, 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 the request to, to go and do the visitation, some say it came from Luther, some say it came from John. Uh, and there may be two things at work here. One is Luther and the professors at Wittenberg want to do a theological look at what's going on. John wants to look at the legalities of what's going on because there's a number of church properties that have been taken over by local cities and towns and people as the monks left their uh, ministries during the Reformation. There is a lot of land that is now being uh, considered in dispute. So the visitations have both a legal character to them and a theological character. So it could be John's like, we need to go see what's happening to the property. And Luther and his companions are like, we need to go to the churches and the homes and see what's going with the people. So yeah. both dynamics could, are there. Could be both. Um, but what ultimately happens is between Luther and, and John, uh, John the Steadfast, they they come to this agreement that they need to get out there. And, and they propose to have a visitation of all the churches in John the Steadfast territories, which is electoral Saxony. Uh, so all those territories to evaluate the development of the evangelical preaching. So there are four uh, people that would go to every church. And, and we're going to look at uh, the character of the visitations. Let, let's first say in 1525... As they start to think about doing this, uh, it didn't go well. They didn't have good guidelines. Uh, there was no way to objectively evaluate the churches. It was more like people just started to visit. They thought, oh, we'll just essentially say hi, see how you're doing. And then they realized they really needed a rubric, um, uh, a way to score what's going on. I, I remember the first time I taught a college class and I was trying to grade a paper yeah, the papers, the research papers that came in. I was talking to my wife, who's a teacher. I said, how do you figure out where the A papers are and the B papers are and the C papers? Because none of these papers are really 
anything that I like. <laughs> so how can I do something to give him some points? And she goes, well, what's the rubric say? I'm like, tell me more about what this rubric thing is. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and that's where she said, well, you have a certain thing about how many footnotes they use. You have a certain thing about how long the paper is. You grade pr- a portion of the paper on the grammar, a portion of the paper on its structure, a portion of the paper on its use of sources. The And... She said, you don't just say, I like the paper, so it's A, it has to add up by points, a rubric. Ah, okay. Well, I feel like the first visitation was these guys going out without any method of scoring. Yeah. And and they just, like, they didn't know what questions to ask. So then 1527, they tried again. Uh, Philip Melanchthon first wrote up the guidelines. He wrote them in Latin. And then uh, Luther and... And Melanchthon and others then translated them into German. And that was kind of necessary because there had grown this dispute that the visitations were going to be this grab of power by the elite. Well, certainly if the instructions are only in Latin and you're going to go visit someone and they want to know what they're being scored on as well. So then it became necessary to translate them into German. So one of the big uh, opponents for the visitation. There's all this word. They had the initial visitations. It's sort of a guy, uh, we're just stopping by, you know, your, your pigs look great, whatever. You know, it's, they have the, and then they, then they come back and they say, you know, that didn't work out very well. We're going to go out and we're going to do something more serious. Well, word comes back. Word gets out that they're going to come back. And this time they're coming with some very specific guidelines and even not only what questions they're going to ask, what things they look for, but who goes. So it's going to be uh, two lawyers that are coming from the uh, John the Steadfast office. And then it's going to be two people from the University of Wittenberg, one from the theological department and one from the philosophical department who are going to also evaluate what's going on. So John Agricola, who had been a student of Luther, a favorite student, favorite student, had at this point started to write some catechisms and had uh, with the 158 questions that everyone should ask. Uh, he had grown in his publishing. He was seen by some even as a competitor among the uh, publishers that when he published something, people wanted it. And he was the director of the Latin Academy in Eisleben, the town that Luther largely grew up in. Okay. And he sees the visitations as a form of tyranny that uh, the teachers from Wittenberg and the lawyers from John the Steadfast office are going to come and demand compliance with teachings and with actions. When, you know, Luther had been talking about everyone should read the scriptures for themselves. And here now Agricola is saying, you told us we had freedom to read the scriptures. Now you're going to tell us what we're supposed to know. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this, so there's this real, and Luther took these questions very, very seriously. Now, Uh, Mike, here I want to add one of the reasons that John Agricola dealt with this question of tyranny wasn't just a power dynamic and the sense of the freedom of the conscience, but John Agricola expressly disagreed with Philip Melanchthon and Luther about the role of the law in developing Christian community. Now, in, in, I believe it's in the 1530s, early 1530s, Luther writes something called... Uh, 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 what are the uh, antinomians against the antinomians? And and he this is the guy, right? He's here. he's targeting specifically John Agricola as the antinomian. John Agricola 
basically says, you know, at that point, we no longer need to follow the law, the Old Testament law. Just throw it out and we ha- we will use the gospel. Actually, the whole Old Testament. He wanted to yeah. throw out the whole Old Testament. The whole question of the law was for Luther what brought about repentance. We examine ourselves according to the law. We see where we are falling short, that we are beggars before the Lord, and that we need to hear the gospel for the consolation and comfort of our soul. Agricola said that it is in the very description and proclamation of the gospel that one is able to come to repentance in the face of such great love one will repent and come to faith, that the gospel can both bring a person to repentance, teach them how to know that they're saved, and then equip them to live that saved life to the point where the law is unnecessary and it's a tyranny against the soul. So, so yeah, Agricola, this is, you know, I wasn't quite clear how thoroughly Agricola in 1527 had expressed his position on on the law. It's starting to come up, even in the catechism that he has published at this point, before Luther has published his own catechism. Agricola had the best-selling catechism in the area at this time. Okay. And his catechism uh, moved people away from uh, studying the law, looking to the law, seeing the law as a point of repentance. The whole even character of repentance is coming up. This catechism is very popular, but later, in, during the antinomian controversy, uh, Luther puts Agricola's catechism on the list of books that should not be bought. Okay. And uh, Agricola be- grows into um, some financial ruin, partly by Luther's statements against his own books. Ah. So the relationship between these two um, is Agricola thinks it's a peer-to-peer, let's have this conversation. Luther responds with a private letter to Agricola, responding uh, to John's concerns now, not John the Studfast, but John Agricola, about his concerns about the visitation. And so he says the purpose of the visitations is to guard against Roman tyranny. For the Romans telling us what we must do and must not do, let's make sure we're talking about what in our freedom of our conscience we have. So so what Luther is doing there is he's basically pointing at a common enemy uh, between Agricola and himself, saying, okay, well, there's this, this creeping papism this creeping support of the papal position that we need to you know we need to get out there and 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 address uh he also says that a christian must insist on the freedom of the conscience even if tyrants make plans the contrary so so Agricola is making this complaint that you're burdening our conscience, and luther writes back we actually are insisting on the freedom of the conscience and we're making sure that's being taught yeah, and, and so Luther uses this example from from the Bible. He talks about the Apostle Paul. Uh, he talks about you know the, the the circumcision of Timothy, where you know Paul constrained himself to the Old Testament law basically by circumcising Tim- Timothy, so that Timothy could preach to the Jews to help the gospel without stumbling block, without yeah, to, a stumbling block, to, yeah. to, to, to remove that stumbling block. But at the same time, Paul reprimands Peter in Antioch for not eating with the Gentiles. So there's this, this you know, whatever is in the way of the gospel needs to be taken care of, and that's sort of the what Luther is saying here is that you know we have this creeping uh papal position coming in we have to come in and take care of that and that might take some some rules you know and to to secure freedom we have to have rules and some of the rules that luther's going to insist in are not wild and crazy he's insisting that the priest know the 10 commandments 
you know, simple things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the, we'll get into that in a minute, but that's, that is absolutely, you know, he's fine. When, when they finally do get this visitation going, you know, after all this back and forth and back and forth, uh, it, like we said in the opening, you know, what they found was shocking and dismaying. You know, I mean, it was, it was amazing how little people knew, especially the priests. But let's, let's get back to this. Um, now, so if he had Timothy circumcised so Timothy could easily preach to the Jews, he's saying to Agricola that the visitations are similar to the circumcision of Timothy, that voluntary submission to the law, ensuring that we all are acting in a common standard, makes it more possible for us to preach the same gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, it's actually sort of, the, the, you know, I, I wanted to include that little, because this is, um, you know, we get too bound up in our churches. It's too easy, I think, for us to get bound up in, you know, the, the balance between freedom and, 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 the, and what we comply with, you know, the, the compliance of... Yeah, the, freedom and obedience are, are a tough tension sometimes. Yeah. And if someone in a position of hierarchy tells us we are supposed to do something, we may answer back to that person who is high above us and not in our context that we can't comply to that because you don't understand our situation. Now, the person who's higher up will say, I do understand your situation, and here's why you need to comply with this. And there's this kind of this give and take between uh, context and compliance. Yeah. And, and so this is this is still, I mean, this, this is going to be an ongoing tension. This is always a tension within the church. What are the boundaries for freedom? What are the, what are the boundaries for compliance? What, you know, that, the compliance that can be driven from above. You know, what, what can, I mean, you have a lot of churches out there that have no, no organizational structure above them because they want full freedom. And, and during the time of Luther, this was much easier. Luther, by the force of his personality, his uh, ability to write theology to the moment and answer with scripture and tradition, the conflicts that are going on to the point where everyone agrees. Yes, you're right. We all are on the same page. After Luther dies, there's tremendous uh, struggle for unity uh, to the point that uh, from his death up till about 1577, there's this great question of what it even means to be an evangelical, uh, to be a Lutheran. And then finally in 1580, uh, they published the Book of Concord, which essentially kind of creates that boundary that says, all right, if you agree with the documents that are inside this Book of Concord, you're Lutheran. You're good. If you are outside of this, then you're something but you're not Lutheran. But you're not Lutheran. So during Luther's time period, I think he could answer John Agricola. He could answer these small uh, problems and essentially say, this is why we're doing it this way. But after Luther dies, what becomes the ability to bring about unity? It's not the force of one man anymore. They start to learn it needs to be the force of Scripture. One of the things that, like, uh, what I liked about this little example of the way Luther handled John Agricola is that it gives us a little bit of a rubric in navigating through those same issues today, which is really, you know, Luther points to the, you know, the gospel takes precedent. You know, the gospel, you know, are these barriers, are these creating barriers to the proclamation of the gospel? Or is this, you know, because we need to, we need to comply with something to, we need to have some constraints to ensure the freedom 
to uh, of the gospel. It's, it's yeah, like, it's a it's it sounds like something that you'd read in uh, 1984 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. We don't mean to be in uh, double speak here. There must be constraints, so we have freedom. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, but it's, it's that's what Luther is saying, and and when you can, you know, he gives the examples of of uh, of of Timothy, and he gives the example of Peter. These two. These two times that 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 Paul either complies with the Old Testament for the sake of the gospel, or or rejects the Old Testament law for the sake of the gospel, or shows that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, yeah. so that now we can have the food with the Gentiles. Exactly, exactly. That's a better way to put it. Thank and, you. Uh, so now, what does it mean to have constraint for Luther? This is the struggle of seeing unity that's bounded by the scriptures. That constraint isn't here um, something that makes life harder, but in fact it makes it more clear what our relationship is with God. Uh, I think when we did our, our podcast recording on the freedom of a Christian, was especially helpful to understand Luther's thinking of how we are completely free from all things through the work of Christ. And because we are completely free from all things through the work of Christ, we are now able to be a servant to all. And this is this is another example of exactly that. And what Luther is going to with Agricola is exactly that same argument. Yes. Everybody in all these parishes, everybody in all these homes uh, who have faith in Christ, they are free from all sin so that now they can serve one another. So what will that service look like? Yeah, without it being chaotic. Without it being chaotic. The the other character, the visitations, we brought up when I described the four people that are going. There were two from the university, and there were two from uh, the elector's office. Um, and this starts to recognize that Luther knows that the power of the state is working alongside of the power of the church. In 1520, Luther wrote an address to the Christian nobility, a nobility where he encouraged civil authorities to reform the church. In 1520, he said that all Christians have a responsibility to protect the well-being of the church. But during the Peasants' Revolt, Luther also argued that there were limits to the role of secular authorities in administering the gospel. He claims that no ruler ought to prevent anyone from teaching or believing as he pleases, whether it is the gospel or lies. So the nobility is changing. Uh, The nobility is starting to recognize that they have more power to influence religion in their region. Uh, Elector John Philip Langrave of Hesse, uh, they're even starting to develop a small called league. They're encouraging a more active role by all of the secular authorities in the proclamation of the gospel. So this is an enthusiasm that Luther uh, supports from his perspective that all Christians have a responsibility to protect the well-being of the church within the vocation that they have. A father has the responsibility to protect the well-being of the church by how he communicates the faith to his children. A, a town has the responsibility uh, to protect the church by how they ensure that there's a peaceful place for the preaching for, to for happen. Worship, yeah. Within each person's vocation, then he starts to say, what is your responsibility to protect the well-being of the church? So, so this is actually, it reminds me of a discussion I had with a pastor friend of mine many years ago, where we were talking about the difference in, and this was back, I'm going to say, you know, uh, back in the 90s with the uh, religious right or the moral majority. The moral majority, yeah. And, and, and those folks, and they were pushing specific laws uh, to say, you know, well, this is the Christian way of doing things. I'm doing air quotes here. Yes. You know, Christian way of doing things. And, and these Christian laws, 
you know, that that was um, this Lutheran pastor friend of mine was uncomfortable with that. And he was saying, you know, uh, you know, we're really the, the more effective way or the more biblical way of doing things is to have a Christian in a position as a senator, as a congressman, as and and give him the freedom to to express his Christianity through his vocation. You know, it's going to be a lot more, he's going to have a lot more flexibility. He's going to have a lot more, he's going to have a better understanding rather than having a law come down from, you know, drive a law that all the Christians are going to vote together to to force the secularists to do things this way. Paul Simon, the senator from Illinois, um, a Lutheran, uh, wrote a, a few different times about the, what it meant for him to be a Lutheran in Congress and how uh, he viewed his, his responsibility to be able to provide through the gifts that God had given to him to serve the people, not to create a Christian nation, but to create a nation where the law is just. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what you were getting to. That's, that's exactly. So it's, it's this different. And, and so Luther is basically, this is, you know, Luther's, when I read this, it reminded me of that story. Uh, that's sort of an echo of Luther, all, you know, in the 20, 20th century, 21st century yeah. of, you know, well, how do we engage secular authorities? How, what is the role of secular authorities in, 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 in the, in the proclamation of the gospel? So in this visitation, the two secular authorities, so there's four people going, the two that are from the elector's office are going largely to make sure that land and the, roles of the churches in these towns to support the people is being properly done the medical care the the care for the poor all those sorts of things is that the finances and the land are being done properly and so i think that kind of fits with the perspective that you have the state deal with the state stuff you have the theologians deal with the theologian stuff they can be on the same visitation team but have different really fulfilling fulfilling their vocations their specific vocations so, so the dis- the disagreement between Luther and Agricola was resolved in a meeting in November of 1527. Uh, it was Luther, Agricola, and there were a few other people there. It was Ma- uh, Melanchthon, Spilatin, who was the go-between between Luther and uh, Frederick the Wise, and then Bugenhagen, who was that was Luther's pastor, wasn't he, it? Bugenhagen is the pastor for the city of Wittenberg. So he was basically Luther's pastor. Yeah, you know, when. He, he was Luther's pastor, and he was also the pastor that was often sent to a city. When the city would send a letter, uh, maybe the city, town, department, whatever it would be, would get together and say, we want to be Lutherans. They'd send a letter to University of Wittenberg and say, help us become Lutherans. Bugenhagen would go and kind of live in residence in that town for a little while, help them restructure their church, restructure their town, and then he'd come back. And while he was away, Luther often did most of the preaching at okay. St. Mary's Church in, there in Wittenberg. Okay. So 1527, November 1527, Agricola and Luther, they settle things. To be honest, it's it's not a good settlement. Agricola for the next 15 years is a thorn in the side of everybody. But the visitations are able to happen. So after the meeting, the articles were released in February of 1528 under the title, and this is a mouthful, Instructions for the Visitors of Parish Pastors in Electoral Saxony. They, they, a lot of these, these, uh, these were, were like that. A lot of these. Well, the titles titles. are essentially, uh, not only the title, but the subheading and the preface, I guess. Uh, Yeah, probably, yeah. And now I just pause here. February 1528, the first visitations were proposed in 1525. Yeah. So three years they spend negotiating 
what the visitations are going to be about. Right. And then, and then they say, okay, it's released in 1528. We're going to get around to actually doing visitations in July. So, so this well, it's is easier to travel during the summer. Probably. Absolutely. So they're, 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 they're saying, okay, you know, they, they're saying this is going to go on for a while. They're not in any hurry. What's interesting here is they want to make sure, it seems to me, just the timing of it. They're looking for it to be done right. You know, mm-hmm. they made their mistake once. They ra- they rushed it. You can only fail to launch once. <laughs> yeah. And then they come out and they really put a lot of thought into these, 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 uh, the, the, the instructions. The instructions, yeah. The and rubric. then they're going out and they're going to do this and they're going to do it right. Okay. We're going to take a beer break here. We have the Black River Oatmeal Stout from the Paw Paw Brewing Company in, surprisingly, Paw Paw, Michigan. So, uh, Paw Paw is a small town in south, uh, southwestern corner of Michigan, almost to Indiana. Uh, and Paw Paw Brewing Company is a small brewery. Uh, it doesn't even have a website. I, I was actually going to go and try and find out. Uh, the only stuff I could find out about them were any little articles they had. They have a Facebook page, you know, um, but they don't really have a lot of information about themselves. So hopefully we help a little bit. Uh, ben Fleckenstein and Ryan Sylvester, uh, they started Paw Paw Brewing in 2010 with the goal of putting people and community above everything else. I love the noble goals of these breweries. Uh, it's so a, do I. a description of the small town. It's all about the people. It's all about the community. You know, I, and uh, you know, I'm, I was uh, should be hopefully about making some good beer. Too. They they do make good beer. We'll, we'll get into that. But the yeah, I, I went to their Facebook page and uh, it's they had you know competing. They had you know games. You know, pl- play this game against the brewer and do this. They're always engaging with their community. They they I a lot of relationship building. A lot of relationship. They built a uh, they built the brewery. And they wanted to make sure that sections of it were available for, there's a bike path that's nearby or something. And they, they want, you know, the, 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 the brownfield, they, they restored the area. They do a lot of that kind of stuff. They're really, really big into, uh, doing what's best for the community and, and being a, a gathering place for the community. Well, let's describe the beer besides the people. The beer, it's, uh, smooth. It's a stout. So it's dark. It's thick, uh, creamy. Um, it is, has some bitter sweetness to it. It's a little bit more bitter than to like uh, Guinness, which is just very creamy. This has got a little bit more of a, a, uh, a little more sour, a, a little, little bit more of, sour, a little bit more of a sour taste. Um, at least this one, uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's, a, it's but it's not a sour beer. It's it's got a little bit. No, of a, we're gonna have that in the next episode, aren't we? Uh, the, from the Bon Vivant, the Bon yeah, the the Vivant breweries. But that's next time. Next you know? time. But this is uh, this is a uh, it's it's a good it's a really nice. I actually really like this one. Mm-hmm. I, I I like pretty much all beer. Uh, but this is this is really that when I poured it. One of the things I read online was that a lot of people complained. Not they didn't complain. They commented that it didn't have much head. Um, this, this particular one, when I poured it, um, it had, it had a pretty good head. Um, now what does it mean to you when a beer has a good head versus say that it's just foamy? Well, it's, uh, it depends, it depends on the head. You know, you'll, you'll get like these thick, these thick heads with a, like a stout like this. You'll get like this real, and it almost is, uh, um, uh, uh it, it seems to me like a, a layer of like cream. Uh, uh, yeah, whipping cream on top. It's exactly like what a it's dessert like. top. To, to me, to yes. me, that's what compared it to say like if you pour um, a labat too quick, and it, it just foams up. Yeah, that's yeah. not what you want. No, that's not what you want. So, but this is a 
it's it's a it's a good beer. This is one of the highest rated beers they make. You know, on uh, on on. Uh, it's got on, a lot of flavor. It's got a lot of flavor. Uh, like I said, it's sort of unusual to have a, a little bit of a, a just a just the slightest bit of a sour taste mm-hmm. um, with uh, with a stout. That's that usually stouts are more creamy. Yeah. Uh, but this is uh, it's it's really an interesting interesting flavor. Um, not in a bad way. <laughs> Sometimes you'll say something. Oh yeah, that's interesting. No, this is this is it's if it it, it could get away from them though. I guess that's it. Seems like I I it seems like the type of thing that if they had a bad batch, if they if if the sour got away from them a little yeah. bit, it would really overtake the beer, and you get a bad batch. But this is this one is it's just a nice. It makes it a much lighter beer for a for a stout. Uh, so it's good stuff. Cheers, prost, salute. <laughs> Cheers, prost, salute. We'll, we'll uh, cover all our bases. To talk a little bit about a, a visitation is a reminder to me in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. They recently changed the name of the circuit counselor to circuit visitor. Every seven to nine congregations, depending on the size of the congregations, are organized in a circuit. Okay. And the name of the the one that's kind of the head of the circuit, the pastor that's the head of the circuit for a long time, was known as the circuit counselor. And uh, just a few years ago, the name was changed to circuit visitor. We even have at some of our circuit meetings, the joke, a quarter jar. So yet if you use the name circuit counselor by accident, you have to put a quarter in the jar because we're all supposed to know the new name is circuit visitor. But in the uh, reasons for the change, they considered that counselor sounds like they're there to counsel you when you have problems. Visitor is much more of a neutral term. We visit... Uh, we're there occasionally, um, but it did have more of uh, a checking in. Like counsel, a counselor is someone you go to when you need them. A visitor is someone who comes and visits you. Right. So the direction of chain uh, of uh, arrival changed from I I go to my circuit counselor when I have problems. Now the circuit visitor comes to me when he wants to visit me. Is it more along the lines of what we're seeing with this visitation? It's... That's what was created. Yeah, they're supposed to, uh, when a visitor comes, there's all sorts of instructions. They're supposed to listen to a sermon. They're supposed to interview people in the church. They're supposed to look at the books in my library, ask me about what journals I subscribe to, and uh, ask uh, about uh, the content of my preaching and, and do all of that. Um, there's a whole list of things they're supposed to do. Uh, in service of supervision. Okay. Okay. No, I don't know any circuit visitor that has any desire to do any of those things, though. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. pretty busy doing the counseling work of helping pastors and congregations when they're in need. And that, uh, yeah. So, so this is, well, you know, this is actually really interesting when, when we go through these, the, the instructions. And I went through the instructions. I read through the instructions that Luther and Melanchthon gave to his visitors, to the visitors that went out to Electoral Saxony. I don't recall seeing anything about looking for journal subscriptions, yeah. but that's or you know that, this is this is something different that they were looking well, at. Let's here. do some examination now of the instructions. This is a preface written by Luther that included a discussion of biblical justification for the visitations, uh, referencing Samuel traveling throughout Israel along with Elijah and Elisha. So in the New Testament, he references Christ wanderings through Judea. Uh, he also discusses the church fathers and that their core duty of the bishops uh, is to visit and oversee the teachings of the church. And this is so this is 
you know, and he builds a great argument here, I thought, for the valid, you know, for a valid need, a biblical need for the visitations. Just the, the word bishop is a reminder of the overseer, the episcopa, is someone who oversees. And the reminder that every parish pastor is a part of the one body of Christ and that we aren't to work as lone rangers and, and take any um, admonitions or corrections as uh, something that should make us afraid, but should encourage us, us to get better. Okay. That's now, the hope that they had. And he, now at the end, he's complaining that, you know, yeah, this was always the job. This so was what all... happened to the bishops then? If this was their job, he says that they uh, had replaced this duty of uh, visiting and overseeing with pomp. Uh, and circumstances, I suppose. The actual work of visiting the churches had been so far down, uh, relegated down to underlings that uh, people had just seen the visits of bishops as a way to get money. Yeah. And so so he's he's saying, you know, we're going to go back to the biblical model and have, you know, vi- real visits from a bishop or an overseer who's going to really make sure that the teachings are correct. Mm-hmm. So let's get into these... these uh, So they're written primarily by Melanchthon with input from many others. As I mentioned earlier, he first wrote them into Latin, but then uh, they helped translate them into German so that they wouldn't be, I think, as as scary to people who were just in the parishes and in the country and not knowing Latin. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like like we said, it was a group effort. The names I saw come up in this were, were Luther, Melanchthon, Spalatin, and Bugenhagen. Those are the four names that I saw come up in, in the writing of this. And Bugenhagen, I didn't realize that he had already been doing this. That makes real sense that he was deeply involved in the writing of the instructions. Because he, he knew what it meant to arrive in a town that desired to be Lutheran, but didn't know exactly how to do it. Yeah, so he was a real good one. There were 18 sections in, in this. When you read through the instructions, they have 18 sections, uh, that is, uh, and it goes from basic teachings like the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer to uh, sacraments uh, like baptism and communion. Uh, and then they get into things like the doctrine of free will and, and, uh, and Christian freedom. So it's, and, and then they also have like church structure type stuff, which I was really sort of surprised. That's more the canon law kind of stuff. Like, how how's the organization of the church going to be? I was surprised that was in there. I was really surprised that was in there, where it said, you know... Okay. There was a vacuum. After you take away the Roman Catholic uh, centuries of precedent and canon law, you take all that away, how does the church structure itself? Yeah, just the... the and this is real nuts and bolts type stuff. You know, if you're going to have a school, how's the school going to be set up? It was it was uh, really sort of a surprise for me mm-hmm. to, to see that... This this uh, this visitation, the instructions for the visitation had something that was so, like I said, nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was expecting to be more spiritually guided. So we're not going to be able to go through all 18 sections, but we're going to touch on some of the highlights now. Uh, f- for first, doctrine. So um, it was interesting that they had, in the section on doctrine, they had some some of the same problems we deal with today. And I, I, I cut out this quote. It says, uh, many now talk only about the forgiveness of sins and say little to nothing about repentance. That sounds like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in talking about cheap grace. Uh, it really eating does. Eating like carcasses at the uh, the body of Christ. This is... The, eating like eagles, vultures at the 
the carcass yeah, of the he, church. Yeah, it says, the preachers are to, are to condemn the gross sins of the common man, but more rigorously demand repentance where there, there is false holiness. And that false holiness, that false piety was a real driving force throughout Luther's early time in the Reformation on his own sense of growth, where he had for a long time uh, sought to present himself as very pious and holy, and then in his confession be felt with a great deal of shame that he was so arrogant and selfish in his goals and purposes for his holiness. And he started then to realize, my holiness must only and completely come by the one who defines me. It must come from God. And so now in the visitations, they're, they're cued into, we need to seek out where there's empty false piety that is producing the vanity of confidence in people and knock that down so that the confidence that people have is completely in the work of God. It's really funny. I've talked to other, you know, other uh, Christian, you know, folks who sit in the pews, right? And because I'm not a pastor, people sometimes say things that they might not say when a pastor's in the room. And uh, uh, one of the things that they'll get into sometimes is they, I, I hear, is this, you know, hey, you know, they're, they're, there is a, you know, we need to do the right thing. We need to be good, good people. Good people go to church, all this kind of stuff. There was one, one guy was, he was, uh, he was, we were talking about the, um, uh, the prodigal son and he, you know, we had like a Bible study on the prodigal son. And then they had the section at the end, of course, where they talk about the, the, the older brother. Right. And he's like, I, I don't see what the problem is with it. I'd be pissed off too. <laughs> ah, you're, you're like, all right, let's talk more about that. Yeah. And this is, it's sort of like this, and maybe you do hear this kind of thing, but there, he was you know, flat out, you know, I, that the older son was right on. He should be given that father, you know, everything. Yeah. It's like, and, and so there's this, this uh, it, right in here, this, um, this, this idea of, of, uh, uh, of of the law of gross sins, but more rigorously demand repentance where there is false holiness. Now that's there. There is this works righteousness even within the Lutheran Church that people are. It's going to be in any church anywhere because it's the character of the human soul to seek uh, our own measuring sticks, our own achievements, our own sense of satisfaction, and to just always be reminded that we are beggars. Yeah. Um, I, I I think then. That as these visitors were going out, that challenge of looking at people, they know the visitors are coming. They know they're going to put on their best displays. And the visitors are essentially going to say, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far away from me. Yeah. Um, and that those words of Isaiah. Now, another section titled Ten Commandments, Melanchthon outlines the three defining characters of a Christian life. And this, uh, for me, is a wonderful reminder that Lutherans were concerned about keeping the law. His three points were repentance for our sins, faith that our sins are forgiven, and doing good works. And this third portion is largely in there to speak against John Agricola and the antinomians. Uh, the word antinomian just means against the preaching of the law. And uh, Melanchthon includes in his description of the Ten Commandments that we respond to our sins being forgiven by doing good works. Well, and then he launches into a discussion on true Christian prayer. And uh, then, as you mentioned, he comes back, he has a paragraph in the third commandment, 
But the majority of the section on prayer is also a discussion of the fourth commandment. And there he's focusing in his discussion on the fourth commandment on the responsibility to government. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, reading between the lines here, I was thinking that he, he was a, really addressing Agricola, mm-hmm. you know, cause Agricola was complaining about the, the, the civil authorities coming in and, and telling, them, and what telling them what to do. And so he sort of shoehorned this whole discussion on the, the civil authorities into a discussion on prayer. Just like, like, oh yeah. And, you know, by the way, you know, when yes. you're praying to God, you're praying to an, this great authority. And, but there's, oh, God has put into place authorities here on earth. I think he had something very specific on, in his mind that he was wanting to tackle. Melanchthon has written some excellent stuff, even up to this point. Later, he's going to write the Augsburg Confession. But before this, in 1521, he had written the Loce Communius, which was uh, a book that describes, uh, through a Bible study of the Book of Romans, uh, the center points of the Christian faith. Melanchthon is a, a great resource for the Reformation. So as much as we, we talk about this confusion in this section on true Christian prayer, Melanchthon wrote some excellent things that guided people to see the the way we are justified by grace through faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think, like I said, I, I think that this wasn't Melanchthon at his best, uh, but it, two things, it was written by committee. And it, there were there were other sharks in the water they had to deal with. You know, that's sort of what I took away was that the, the, it got muddied because it was sort of like, you know, we have this big issue. We have, let's put it in here. You yeah. Know? And so, so he has this thing about the Ten Commandments and Christian prayer. Then he writes a baptism, which is a small section, but he makes a, a choice of defending infant baptism uh, and connecting it to Israelite circumcision and being cut into the promises of God, being uh, brought into the covenant of God. Uh, there's an argument about uh, rebaptism and why it's not necessary. Uh, Melanchthon doesn't spend a lot of time in the argument. Neither does Luther, so neither are we. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We're just gonna slide right over. But that is that is a. a I'll, I will say that I have heard some very good Christian apologists, uh, or I'd say, a good Presbyterian. Uh, there's an hour long discussion linking circumcision to baptism and building the case that you know this is all part of the the introduction into the body of the faith and that they work together and there's all these linkages between them and so so i thought that was a relatively new argument and that now here i am you're reading this something from the 16th century with melanchthon with melanchthon and melanchthon covers it and then i I did some more research i found luther did cover it in uh in uh almost at the same timeline uh, when he discusses rebaptism, so it, it, this uh, that that argument goes back to this era. Then um, there's a discussion of the tribulation. So uh, I'm going to just quote Luther here. First, we are to teach the people that all tribulation, not only of the spirit but also of the body, is sent from God, whether it is poverty or illness, danger to children, peril of possession or hunger. I cannot recall anybody ever preaching on this. This is, uh, talk about an uncomfortable subject. He's saying, oh yeah, this is something you need to do as part of our regular preaching. I don't know how a modern pastor can cover that. I think where you'll hear in probably modern times pastors talk about tribulation is this tension between people thinking that God is punishing me 
or is God disciplining me? What is the lesson that God is teaching me? Or what is the silver lining in this cloud? There are a lot of attempts to pull some grand meaning from our tribulation. And I think what is happening here in the 16th century is they're just much closer to daily suffering than we sometimes are. And, and Luther's reminding them, in your preaching, you have to remind people that the tribulations we experience in this world are not an absence of God, that God is present in this world in, the, in our tribulations. And sometimes even as our tribulations arrive, we can see them as points where God is at work in this world. Yeah. And that's a tough thing to say. God, if you have a lesson to teach me, could you teach it a different way? <laughs> is there an easier way? I just thought that was fascinating to see that there. And then the section of the Lord's Supper deals with some of the primary disputes of the nature of the Lord's Supper. Uh, at the same time the visitations were starting, there was a dispute among the reformers about the nature of the Lord's Supper. Luther taught uh, that Christ is truly present in the body and bread and wine. Zwingli and Karlstadt are teaching that uh, the bread and wine were a remembrance of Christ. And so in the visitation, they're going to teach, remember, to proclaim that Christ is present in the meal. It all, they also talked about uh, when a pastor should withhold communion. So, you know, and they, the, the ban mm -hmm. is what they, they talk about. So there's, there's a lot of discussion around communion. This was a huge flashpoint amongst the reformers at this time. And so obviously I need to d address it here. Then there's a, a section on free will. Uh, a good and short summary of Luther's teaching uh, is hard to do uh, because he did write The Bondage of the Will, which is his most complex work, over 300 pages of some uh, detailed rhetoric that he's answering back to Erasmus, which we could probably discuss. But on the other hand, we're just going to utilize what's inside these instructions. <laughs> yeah, this is about half a paragraph. And it's, basically, he says... Uh, uh, a man has the power, has in his power a freedom of the will to do or not to do external works regulated by law and punishment. But this freedom is hindered by the devil. Here is a helpful spot to point out that when Luther is describing uh, the freedom of the will to do external works, he is describing our horizontal relationships that we have with the men and women around us. He is not describing any sort of free will that we have in relationship to God. They'll, they'll talk about this as two kinds of righteousness, that we have active righteousness in this world as we choose uh, through the, the gifts we have to serve our neighbor according to our abilities. Uh, but we are passive in our righteousness in relationship to God, receiving completely and entirely by the grace of God, the righteousness of Christ, passively receiving it through faith. So, and that's basically what the next paragraph or the next section he writes about is, on the other hand, man cannot by his own power purify his heart and bring forth godly gifts such as true repentance of sins, a true as over against an artificial fear of God, a true faith, sincere love, chastity, a spirit without vengefulness, the long, true long-suffering, longing prayer, not to be miserly, etc. Therefore, we should constantly pray that God will bring forth his gifts in us this we call Christian goodness. Draws this line between spiritual goodness and goodness between men. You know, this horizontal goodness between different people. So was, I thought that was a great quick summary. A lot shorter than Bondage of the Will. So through these 18 sections, uh, they're describing some basics of Christian faith and doctrine. They're describing some of the logistics of how to structure a church and a school. 
and then they go out. And they go out in July 1528. Uh, they divide Saxony into four districts. Luther himself joined a cohort that visited Wittenberg and its surrounding parishes. And what he found and the other visitors found truly shocked them. Uh, most pre- preachers, he's, at least what they I read was that most preachers were sound doctrinally, but others were not, uh, nor were all provided for sufficiently. So there wasn't enough money there to take care of them. They found a laity that was lacking in strong moral conviction. Really bothered the most was the absence of basic doctrinal knowledge, such as the ability to recite the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer. Really shook them to their core. And that sort of got them thinking, gee, we really do need to get something out there for for the common man to understand the basic doctrine. And so then um, in 1528, around the same time as preparing for his visitations, uh, Bugenhagen's away from Wittenberg. And it is in the cycle of preaching time for Luther to preach four times a year. They would preach a catechism sermon series. And in the spring series, Luther preaches from the preparations for the visitation and from these sermons in uh, the first quarter of 1528, we start to get the, the foundations for what will be the large catechism and the small catechism. And that's what we'll talk about next time. So we will be sort of changing format, changing format a little bit as we dive into the small and the large catechism. That's going to be really getting into that large catechism. There's a lot there and it's very meaningful even today. So we'll get into that next time. Uh, want to say thanks. Thanks to our listeners and thanks to Josh. Uh, also want to say thanks to my daughter, Sarah, Sarah Yakely. Uh, she gave us an updated graphic. Uh, she is going to the College for Creative Studies. Uh, she did the original graphic for us, um, but now she's gotten some formal training and it is much, much, much better. She also does the music for us. So the so, intro music and the exit music is all from Sarah that's, as well. That she wrote them and performed So it's a Yagley affair. It's a Yagley affair. And, and your wife helps with some of the research as well. She does. She does. We're, we're all busy in this. I uh, want to thank uh, or recognize our source materials, uh, James Kittleson, Luther the Reformer. The Reformation 500 website, uh, which was prepared as around the, the preparations for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 2017, has some good timeline information. And then Luther's works, of course. And volume 40 is where you found the instructions to the visitors. Yep. And a, lot, and a good little summary there at the beginning. That was that was real good. Always, you know, Wikipedia is a, a great place to give us some just basic information to start a launching point on different things. You can contact us at graceontappodcast at gmail.com. Another one is if you want to see our, uh, we have a website at graceontap-podcast.com or you can catch us on Facebook at Grace on Tap Podcast. Uh, appreciate any reviews you could post on iTunes. Uh, that helps get the word out. Prost. Prost. Prost.